0: We on that haunted ground, the three spooked girls. Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on three spooked girls. My name is Tara and as always, I am here with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today we are bringing you our next episode in our Serial Killer Summer Series. Today we are going to be talking about Richard Speck. Jesus (laughs) fuck.
1: (laughs) Dude, this dude. But
0: (laughs) before we get into that, if you are new here, hello. Thank you for checking out the show. We appreciate you. Returning spooksters, welcome back. If you would like to hang out with us on social media, you can find everything for us in the link tree or search Three Spooked Girls on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can join our awesome Facebook group, which is Three Spooked Girls Official. Yeah, book club, we do gift exchanges, all kinds of cool stuff in there. Not even just holidays, because we did that mug one too. I totally forgot about that. That was oh, a thing. Yeah. That was we a did. thing. Yeah, sometimes we kind of sprinkle in other ones, no promises, but you know, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's science. it just depends. It just depends. yes.
0: yes. <laughs> and if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls or to the link tree below. This previous Thursday we published a an all-tier episode. so that's kind of a sneak peek into that content over there. We do all kinds of fun stuff. we do video content. there is swag that goes out every so often. Yeah. So lots of cool things. And Slaughter's is coming back. That's Jessica's fun movie segment she does. We're going to be picking some movies and doing that. So fun times. And we have Pride merch. You want that, whether you're gay or not, go get it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're for allies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Jess made sure to be very inclusive. And so there's all kinds of cool stuff on there. New cups, because me and Jessica are cup hoes and mug hoes so yeah you know there's all kinds of fun stuff over there i'm fucking on one right now i'm sorry i've been on one all damn day
1: you guys i just i just have to address the mug ho thing or the cup (laughs) thing like Taro and i will literally be like we will find them a cup or mug that we like and we will use it for a few days without telling the other person and then all of a sudden we'll be like you need to get this and then the other the other person will obsess about it until we get it Yep, pretty much. It's currently in my life. I'm like, I just need to get to Walmart, but I never go to Walmart because it's so far away because the Walmart that's close to my house is very sketchy. And the first time I went there, some person screamed in my face and now (laughs) I can't go back.
0: Yes. Because if you guys are on TikTok and have seen the Stanley like travel mug thing that has the straw, Walmart has one and it's legit and I like it and I have it in front of me right now. So that's what she's talking about. But, Mm -hmm. anyways. Enough about that. Yeah, I think that's really all we have. So I'm going to hand it over to Jess to kind of go over this dude's background and into the murders, and then I will pick up from there.
1: Okay, so Richard Benjamin Speck was born December 6th, 1941, in Kirkwood, Illinois. Richard would later say that he was born before all hell broke loose because he was born exactly one day before the Pearl Harbor attack. Yeah, crazy. I was like, Omen. Mm-hmm. No kidding. He was the sixth of eight children born to Benjamin Franklin Speck and Mary Margaret Carbo. They both have like figure names. Yeah. Like Mary <laughs> Margaret, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> right. now. He actually, he and his younger sister, whose name was Carolyn, w- who was born a couple years after him, were much younger than his other siblings. Mm. Much younger. Mm. And his mother was a very particular person. I think Mary Margaret took her name very serious in the fact that she was very religious. Mm. She believed in teetotalism, which is the belief or the practice of promotion of a personal abstinence from alcoholic beverages. Oh. So like Mary and I ain't gonna be cool is what no. I'm picking up. <laughs> His father was actually a hardworking man, and he was a packer at the Western Stoneware. And in previous jobs, he'd been a farmer and a logger, so he was kind of like very like manual physical labor. Mm-hmm. But Richard's mom, being the person who was abstinent from alcoholic beverages, mm-hmm. was very strict and would often like berate, basically like scream at her family and. Richard said that one time he remembered his mom screaming at Benjamin because they'd gone to like a cookout and like a fish fry or some sort of Mm -hmm. thing like that. And I guess he had one beer and that was like the end of the fucking world. Like they got into a fight about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Richard didn't like this. And I think this is one of the first instances in his life where it's began to shape Richard's opinion of women. And he didn't think the way that she spoke to his father was appropriate. Richard and his father didn't get to spend that much time together, but when they did, they did spend quality time. One of Richard's fondest memories with his father is that he would take him to a local lake and the two would go fishing for bluegills and just talk and spend quality time together, and this is a time that he would cherish. However, Richard's father, Benjamin, would pass away in 1947 when Richard was just six years old, he would die from a heart attack at the age of 53.
0: Oh, that's pretty young. Damn.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So Richard was without a father. And during this time, it's it's stated through classmates have said and like teachers and even his mother had said like from the time that the time after Richard's father died until about the time I think she remarried three years later, Richard actually regressed to have like tantrums and act more like a toddler than his age. Mm. So one of his classmates remembered they were in like the second grade and they were watching a movie and he like looked back and Richard was sitting on the teacher's lap. Mm -hmm. The student, the kid asked the teacher, like, why was Richard sitting on your lap? And she's like, well, he was crying and basically throwing a fit like a baby. And this is the best place I could think to put him. Yeah. So it was kind of like, you know, a little creepy. A little bit. And it was more, like, creepy, like, in the fact that, like, here's a, like, a seven-year-old throwing a toddler fit. Right. That's probably pretty hard to manage. Yeah. But like I mentioned earlier, Mary Margaret would remarry to a man with a name equally as crazy. His name was Carl August Rudolph Lindberg. (laughs) And they would get married in Texas on May 10th, 1950. She and Carl met when they were on a train ride to Chicago. Basically, mm-hmm. Carl was a traveling insurance salesman from Texas, but he wasn't—he wasn't a really good guy. He had mm-hmm. a 25-year criminal record that ranged from forgery to several DUIs, oh. which is interesting because, like, he had several DUIs, which indicated mm-hmm. that he was a hard drinker, which is the complete opposite of the man that Margaret tolerated prior. Mm -hmm. Like, to go from, like, berating your husband because he had a beer at, like, a fish fry to marrying a man who has been convicted of several times of getting behind the wheel. And to quote Leslie Mm Nob likes to glug, 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 and then drive, drive, drive. That was interesting, Richard and Carolyn would stay with their their sister. Her name was Mary Thornton. She was married and like had kind of her own you know had her own life mm-hmm. and they would stay with her until probably like a few months after margaret mary Margaret had been married to Carl and then they mm-hmm. would move to Santo, Texas, which is about forty miles out of the dallas fort worth area
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they would move there. Now, Richard hated, hated Dallas. He hated the schools. He felt very isolated. He wouldn't speak. This is like one of those times where like people thought he was dumb because he just wouldn't talk. Mm-hmm. He And he desperately longed to go back to Illinois because he thought that was where the good life was because that's where he remembered being happy. Oh. You know, with like his dad and his other mm-hmm. siblings and whatnot. Yeah. And with that loss of his parental figure, two years after Margaret got married or Mary Margaret got married to Carl, her oldest son, Robert, would die in a car accident. And mm-hmm. he was also, like, another father figure. So at a very young age, he's probably 11 or 12, he has lost two parental figures. And then the other paternal figure in his life is abusive. Because mm-hmm. Carl was not nice, was not nice to Richard at all. He would, like, yell and scream and beat him. He would be verbally, like, I mean, it was just all kinds of bad. And then, then he would, like, be gone for a while. Mainly, I think, because he traveled. But then, you know, it just was kind of sad. And they also weren't very stable all of the time in the 12 years that Richard lived with his mom in the Dallas area, they had t- they lived in ten different places, and typically they were in like poorer neighborhoods. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of instability in Richard's life because of the fact that there was this abuse happening. Richard began to hate his mom even mm-hmm. more. Especially when you take into account the 180-degree attitude change that she had, specifically around the men she was involved in, to go from being, like, an abuser herself to allowing the abuse to happen. Yeah, it wasn't good. Mm. Richard continued to struggle in school. He he was already picked on, and so he refused, in addition to that, he refused to wear his glasses Mm -hmm. that he needed. So because of that, he, like, didn't, like I said earlier, he didn't speak in class. He actually had to repeat the eighth grade.
0: Oh, that sucks.
1: And when he actually moved on to ninth grade, during the fall semester, he failed, like, every subject. And by 1958, which he would have been just 16, he decided Mm -hmm. not to return to school. So he dropped out. Mm -hmm. He also, like, another serial killer that we know of, Jeffrey Dahmer. He was Mm -hmm. an early drinker. So he started drinking alcohol at the age of 12 and was basically drunk every day by age 15. So I saw the two, like, I saw the parallel between those two. He was first arrested in 1955 at the age of 13 for trespassing and then would be arrested, like, he'd be arrested dozens more times by the time he reached adulthood. Between the years of 1960 and 1963, he would actually maintain a job. He worked at a 7-Up bottle company in Dallas, so a bottling company. So mm-hmm. he actually had like steady employment. And then in, the, in October of 1961, Richard would meet a girl by the name of Shirley Malone. She was 15, and they met at the state fair. So 1961, he would be 20 years old, or just about to turn 20. She was 15 years old. And I know we always have to be Mm. like, it was a different time. But, like, can we just say, like... It's fucking gross and predatory. Y'all, like, creepy things happen (laughs) in that time.
0: And much more after that time. Fuck.
1: Right. They became hot and heavy pretty damn quick. In fact, they got pregnant within three weeks of dating. Ugh. Uh Uh-huh. They would marry on January 19th, 1962. And they moved in with his sister, Carolyn, and her husband. Also, Mary Margaret lived with them because she had separated from Carl, who had now skipped town and was living in California. On July 5th, 1962, Richard and Shirley would welcome their daughter, Robbie Lynn Speck, but he would not be there for the birth because he was serving 22 days in jail for disturbing the peace after out being crazy in Texas. And that would not be his only issue in July of 1963 with the law. He's 21 years old, and he was actually sentenced to three years in prison after being convicted of forgery and robbery. He forged and cashed a check of a co-worker's for $44 and also robbed a grocery store for cigarettes, beer, and $3 in cash. He was paroled after 16 months in 1965, and he was in Huntsville, in case anyone wanted to know where he was serving his time.
0: Mm.
1: He's also one of those people who like wasn't out that long. In fact, in 1965, it was like a week later, he was arrested again. Ah He attacked a woman in a parking lot in her apartment parking lot. He had a 17 inch carving knife. So obviously going to jail and spending time in an institution it did not change him for the better. It hardened him and made his next crime a lot more than stealing a coworker's check and then robbing a place. Yeah. He was convicted of aggravated assault and given another 16-month sentence to run concurrently with his parole violation, Mm. which I'm like, come on.
0: Right.
1: However, because, you know, life isn't fucking fair, there was an (laughs) error in this. There was an error that occurred within his case, and he was released six months later. So he was out in July of 1965. Mm. Now. You're probably wondering what happened to Shirley, you know, mm-hmm. his wife. Well, by December of 1965, she had filed, Though they had separated and wanted to file for divorce. So she was on her way to do that. She would file by January of 1966. However, in December, his mother would be like, hey, there's this woman. She's like 29. She's a bartender and an ex-pro wrestler. I think you should move in with her. All of these things sound fantastic, right? (laughs) Basically, Richard would get in trouble again because, like, one of the nights out of the bar, Mm -hmm. he stabbed a man with a knife.
0: Here we go again.
1: Right. However, this time he had a lawyer. His mom got him a lawyer, which reduced his sentence from aggravated assault to disturbing the peace. He was Mm -hmm. fined $10 and had to spend (laughs) three days in jail. (sighs) Mind you, he's still very young during all of this. Mm Mm-hmm. He, like, under 25. Fucking crazy. He would go on to do some more crazy things. Like, he would rob, he would buy a car, and then he would, like, rob grocery stores. He actually robbed a grocery store of 70 cartons of cigarettes, and then he sold them out of the trunk of his car in the grocery store parking lot. Like, balls, (sighs) dude. Right. (laughs) Balls. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) i'm loving for two reasons one because i said balls but two later 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 guys later so about this time it's 19 it's 1966 and richard is like the fuck am i gonna do like if i stay in dallas anymore i'm not gonna stay out of jail right so he hopped a bus to chicago Hmm. which he apparently was really excited about Hmm. however this didn't actually This didn't actually change a lot, because when he came to stay with his sister, Martha, who lived in Chicago, he actually would end up committing several crimes. And one, he supposedly stabbed, like he was doing some carpenter work, Mm -hmm. and he supposedly stabbed and killed Mm -hmm. a man there. Also, on April 3rd, he would break into a house of 65-year-old Virgil Harris Mm -hmm. at 1 a.m., and he was supposedly burglarizing, and he ended up blindfolding her, (laughs) tying her up, and committing sexual assault on Uh her. Then he went and ransacked her house and stole. She'd been out babysitting, and she'd made like $2.50 from babysitting, Yeah. And he took that money.
0: Mm $2.50.
1: Jesus. And like I said earlier, he ended up like, there was a 32-year-old barmaid that worked at her brother-in-law's tavern called Frank's Place in his hometown of Mammoth. Mm -hmm. And she was reported missing on April 13th, and her body was found that day in an empty hog house behind the tavern. She died from blows to the abdomen, rupturing her liver. Jesus. And so all these people are like, fuck, who did this, right? You know, like, they're trying to figure it out. They're having trouble. So basically, his sister Martha was like, look, you can't fucking stay with me anymore. I have tried to be nice to you. I am trying to be nurturing to you. Mm-hmm. Please note that she herself, she was a registered nurse, his sister. Mm-hmm. So he basically was like, fine, whatever. I'm part of this crime syndicate, whatever, whatever. And mm-hmm. his brother-in-law, Martha's husband, was like, hey, I have this friend who works with the U.S. Merchant Marines. Like, maybe you can, like, go live on a ship and work there.
0: Right. So even
1: though they were like, get the fuck out of our house, they were like, we'll help you get a job. Mm-hmm. So he did that and he joined a 33 member crew of the Inland Steels Clarence B Randall and it was like a lake freighter so on one of like the you know those the, the lakes out there Great Lakes so he would go out there however he didn't really like it so much and then he started really complaining of pain in his abdomen and he ended mm-hmm. up going to the hospital because, fun fact, he had <laughs> appendicitis. Oops. So they had to do an a- appendectomy and remove it. hmm Supposedly, Richard loved being in the hospital with all the nurses who were, like, doting on him and taking care of him. And I'm not even going to be, like, one of those people who were, like, because they thought he was cute. He was not an attractive man whatsoever. No. Yeah. Not just because the inside of him was disgusting, but just, no. But I think it's like, you know, when you're in the hospital, nurse. I've been in the hospital, nurses take really good care of you. And he was there for like two weeks, mind you. Mm -hmm. Because apparently back then, having an appendectomy, you were in the hospital for two weeks. Now you can have an appendectomy and they send you home the same day.
0: Right? I was just thinking that.
1: Like, it happened to Kaylee. (laughs) So he basically was just like, he he couldn't get settled, right? Like, every time he would try to like... His brother-in-law would try to get him a job. He would end up somehow just, like, getting fired or getting kicked off a ship or just not staying on a ship. And so basically, it was just, like, over and over and over again. And that will bring us to July 13th of 1966. Mm -hmm. So, mind you, he is, like, angry. He has been, like, Running around Chicago just trying to like figure shit out. And he decided that he was going to break into kind of dormitory style housing on 2319 East 100th Street in the Jeffrey Manor neighborhood. And when he broke in, it was the dormitory housing of student nurses. When he broke in the window, he would encounter. Gloria Davies, Patricia Mayusk, Nina Jo Schmail, Patricia Wilkening, Suzanne Ferris, Mary Ann Jordan, Mary Letta Garyula, and Valentina Passion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mind you, later on, he would claim that he was drunk and high, so he doesn't know what he was doing. All he originally committed to was like breaking in to steal money. It was said that he first knocked on the door of another woman that I did not mention. Her name is Corazon Amaro. She was, mind you, all these girls were between twenty and twenty-four years Mm -hmm. old. So she was twenty-three, and basically, just spoiling it now, Corazon would be the only one to survive. Mm -hmm. She was actually an exchange student from the Philippines. And she would later say that all the American girls that were there were telling her to just be calm, to try to like, you know, I mean, they were taking psychology courses Mm -hmm. in nursing school. And so they were like, okay, just like try to deescalate. Like, that's what they were trying to do. It seemed to kind of be working. She said that he was sitting there and had them kind of all lined up. He had torn up some bedsheets and had them there. And then was just sitting there smoking a cigarette. And then it was, like, all of a sudden it, like, just clicked, it seemed mm-hmm. like. And then he just got up and he started taking the women one by one out of the room. Nobody really screamed. Nobody really, like, fought back. Nobody, you know. And I get it. Like, he had a weapon. They were scared. And it was also, there were two women who came in la- like came in later than everyone else. And I apparently startled him. Mm. And that's kind of one of the triggers. So he had them all tied up and he took them one by one. His last victim was Gloria Davy. She was 22 years old and she was the only woman that he sexually assaulted or brutalized. And he actually, he strangled her. Everyone else he stabbed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The next day, people came to check in because I guess they had heard, like some neighbors had heard some stuff like, some noises that they didn't think were particularly normal for that house. So they came to check and they found, they found the bodies. And it was about 6 a.m. when all of this was happening. And Corazon had literally been laying under the bed the whole time. When Speck turned around, she said she rolled under the bed mm-hmm. to hide herself from him. Right. And so at this point in time, Speck has left. The house, and I'm going to hand it over to Tara, who is going to tell us the rest of this not yet done crazy story.
0: (laughs) No. Okay, guys. Oh, God. All right. So, obviously, because these were nursing students and just of the time period, this blew up in the media everywhere. It was on newspapers, it was on TV, it was fucking everywhere. And if you're thinking, this sounds familiar, yes, this is who the nurses that were killed in Murder House, that whole thing, it was based on this. There's also a ton of other, like, movies and TV and all kinds of shit with him. The Mindhunter, too. Yes, yes. But we're going to flash forward two days. So there was this guy who was known as a drifter named Claude Lunsford. And Richard was doing what he does best, and he was drinking and hanging out. So Claude, Richard, and another man, they were doing that, and they were hanging out on July 15th on the fire escape of the Star Hotel at 617 West Madison. And it's like, don't get it twisted, it's a really like sketch, sketch hotel type of situation. And the next day, when all of this, you know, like I said, being all over the news and stuff, Claude was like, Holy fuck, this is my little drinking buddy. Holy shit. Because he had saw a sketch of this person who murdered these nursing students. And he actually called the police at 9.30 p.m. on July 16th. Good for him. (laughs) However, the police didn't respond to the call at all. Of course. Yeah, that's why I laughed, because they did nothing. And it's just fucking crazy because, like Jess said, there was a survivor, so (laughs) everybody knew his name, everybody knew what he looked like, all that fucking thing. So he was like, he was fucked, and he knew it. So what does he do? He decides to try to commit suicide. He slashed the inside of his elbow and his right wrist, and then he decided to just lay down in Claude's room at the hotel. He was found. And the front desk person called nine one one around midnight. And so first responders came and he was taken to Cook County Hospital by twelve thirty AM, which puts us at July 17th. And they didn't know his name, so they assumed he was the person who had booked this room, which was under a fake name. And that was B. Brian. So that's just what they admitted him as, because they didn't know who the fuck he was, right? Now there was a doctor there whose name was Dr. Leroy Smith. He was 25 years old and he was a surgical resident physician there. And when he was cleaning him up and getting the blood off him and, you know, all of that stuff, he noticed he had a tattoo. And this tattoo said "Born to Raise Hell." And he's like, "Wait a fucking minute because Leroy here had just been on his lunch break just read about the murders and they mentioned the tattoo." So, being the responsible doctor he was, he called authorities, they came, and they're like, holy shit, yes, that's Richard Speck, we're taking him, obviously. The doctor was very cute. He <laughs> I was yes, like, he was ooh. Good
1: looking. <laughs> I <just laughs> was like, it wasn't even like the times, I was like, did this man travel back in time? Right, I know. I was like, he is handsome.
0: Right. And what's just so crazy is, like, because of the crime rate and everything like that, they didn't even get around to, they had him, but they didn't even get around to questioning him until after three weeks from when he was arrested. So almost a full fucking month, just chilling. (laughs) It's like, okay. (laughs) Uh, So as we go on, he would obviously be charged and we would go to pretrial. So, felony court judge Herbert J. Passion, pass, yep, that's what I'm gonna go with. He decided that there was gonna be a panel to see if he was competent to stay on trial and check his sanity at the time. Now, when he did this, though, he did allow the prosecution and the defense to pick three physicians each. So, makes it fair, you know? And this panel consisted of five psychiatrists and one general surgeon. And when they did all of their tests and everything, they did find him competent to stand trial and concluded that he had not been insane at the time of the murder, so they were good to go. Now, while he was waiting and he was in jail, he did get seen twice a week by the Cook County jail psychiatrist, Dr. Marvin Zipporin, aka, I'm just going to call him Dr. Z. And these continued right after he was transferred from the hospital inside of the Chicago's House of Corrections on July 29th, 1966 until February 13th, 1967, the day before he was sent to Paroya, which is where he would have his trial. I watched, you probably might have watched it too, I watched a documentary and Dr. Z was on it. And he said that Richard enjoyed being in jail. He had a hot plate in his fucking cell so they would have coffee and... (laughs) somehow eventually got a razor blade and put it to Dr. Z's throat and said, quote, "If I'm such a monster, why don't I kill you right now?" And Dr. Z said he told him to put it down and he obviously didn't get murdered because he's on this documentary. and he put it down <laughs> and he did. And he did. So interesting. Dr. Z prepared a discharge summary and on there he put that Richard had depression, anxiety, guilt, and shame. But also a deep love for his family. And then it went on to note an obsessive compulsive personality and a quote, Madonna prostitute attitude towards women, end quote. Dr. Z noted that he viewed women as saintly until he felt betrayed by them, and then that's when this hostility would develop. He also noted that Richard had organic brain syndrome resulting from the cerebral injuries suffered earlier in his life. And it's the definition of that is basically just that it's defined as a state of diffused cerebral dysfunction associated with disturbance in consciousness, cognition, mood, affect and behavior in the absence of drugs, infection or a metabolic cause. But he also agreed, you know, Richard was competent to stand trial, but was insane at the time of the crime due to alcohol and drug use on his brain in combination with this organic brain syndrome. Now, what's interesting, so I'm going to get in the trial and stuff here in a second, but like Dr. Z didn't testify at all. It makes sense because he was writing a book at the time about spec and all of this stuff. And so both the prosecution and the defense were like, "Mm, no, thanks. You know what I mean? Right. So he's like, no, no. (laughs) And Dr. Z did get a written consent to write this book and told him to, quote, tell what I really am like, end quote. And then he wrote that very quickly because it came out summer of 1967.
1: Oh, damn.
0: Yeah. So like I said, the trial would be in Paroya. I feel like I'm saying that wrong, but don't yell at me, Illinois on April 3rd, 1967. And this is about three hours southwest of Chicago. And when they went to trial, there was a gag order on the press because, like I said, it was fucking everywhere, right? And Corazon, the survivor, she would take the stand and they had asked if she could identify the killer of her fellow students. And not only did she ID him, she got up and went right in front of him, and pointed a finger right in his face, almost touching him, and said, this is the man. So, she's the boss-ass bitch. She's like, "Yeah, Fuck she you. is." I love it. I love it. And they went, you know, they went over evidence, all of that stuff, and saying, you know, they obviously, they, they found fucking his fucking fingerprints there. So, he could be like, oh, I don't remember anything at all. It's like, well, you were there. So, you did it. <laughs> now, The trial wouldn't be too long. It'd be 12 days, and then the jury would deliberate, and that would end up being rather quickly. They deliberated for 49 minutes, and of course, they found him guilty. Now, they recommended the death penalty for him. And on June 5th of that year, the judge sentenced him to be executed via electric chair, but granted an immediate stay pending automatic appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court, which upheld his conviction and death sentence on November 22nd, 1968. Now, let's talk about um, his life in prison, because that was interesting. So he was incarcerated at the Statesville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois, at first, he was given the name The Birdman, because apparently, a pair of sparrows flew into his cell and he kept them.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm
0: like, that's fucking weird. He was also described as a loner. He had a stamp collection, would listen to music, and he also liked to paint. Eventually, he would be moved into isolation, and he ended up, they thought he did such a good job, they let him paint the whole, like, unit. Interesting. Like, free labor. You know, you know. <laughs> it's like, okay his little exchanges with the warden included requests for new shirts or a radio or other just like basic items. And the warden described him as, quote, a big nothing doing time. But he was not a model prisoner, which is kind of like the opposite of what he's saying. Because it's like, if you think they're just being like boring and doing nothing, they wouldn't be getting into trouble. But he did. He was very much into drugs I guess you could say prostitution, but I don't know like really what he got in exchange for that besides not being killed. And he also made moonshine in there. So, you know, he was busy and really he didn't give a flying fuck because basically anytime he said, you know, like people would ask him about it, he said, how am I going to get in trouble? I'm in here for 1200 years. So he just like, he's like, whatever, I don't give a flying fuck. Right. Now he typically would refuse all interviews, media requests, things like that. But he did say yes to one person named Bob Green in 1978. He had told Bob that he had read his column in the Chicago Tribune and so he would do an interview. This is actually when he confesses to the murders for the first time publicly. And he said he thought he would get out of prison, quote, between now and the year 2000. Spoilers, no, he doesn't. And he said after he got out, he hoped to run his own grocery store. And he said that one of his favorite things to do in prison was getting high. And then when Bob asked him if he compared himself to killers like John Dillinger, he said, quote, Me, I'm not like Dillinger or anybody else. I'm freakish. And, of course, Bob wanted to ask, you know, more about when he killed the nurses. And he said he had no feelings. Quote, I had no feelings at all that night. They said there was blood all over the place. I can't remember. It felt like nothing. I'm sorry as hell for those girls and for their families and for me. If I had to do it over again, it would be a simple house burglary. End quote. And then he was asked his final thought for the American people. And his statement was, quote, just tell them to keep up their hatred for me. I know it keeps up their morale, and I don't know what I'd do without it. End quote. That's, that's, um, that's interesting. (laughs) But to jump a couple decades. So in 1996, and if you've looked this up, you've probably watched it. And if you haven't, you fucking need to. So in May of 1996, there was a news anchor named Bill Curtis. He received a videotape that was recorded at Statesville Prison in 1988. I don't know why this person held on to it for so long, but okay. This was said to come from a, quote, anonymous attorney. But who the fuck knows, really, right? And what we see in this video is interesting. So, oh boy, okay. So basically, kind of a summary here that we're going to go over is that Bill pointed out the explicit scenes of sex, drug use and money being passed around by the prisoners who seemingly had no fear of being caught. In the center of it all was Richard, performing oral sex on another inmate. And in this video he's sitting there talking, there's clips of a huge pile of cocaine that they are partaking in. He strips down and he's wearing a pair of silk panties and like, just, just, we talked about this before we started recording. Richard had boobs and was definitely, like, bragging about all of this. And the rumors were that he had been able to smuggle in hormone treatments, and that's how he developed boobs. And basically, he was doing this to be more appealing to those he was... Having adult interactions with. I was going to say servicing. And whatnot. Yes. So he was being very calculated with all of this, basically. And he's even, there's even a point in the conversation he says, quote, if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose, end quote. And so this caused a whole fucking ruckus, obviously. And the Illinois legislator, they filled up a whole auditorium to talk, to view this. (laughs) and talk about it i guess but they stopped it when the whole like blowjob thing was happening and this is another time that it's recorded of him confessing to what he did he was asked if he had killed the nurses he said sure i did and when asked why he kind of shrugs and says it wasn't their night okay
1: which Is a line in the criminal minds thing, except for when he does that, he throws a fucking bird through a fan. Ew. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, he doesn't do that in in real life. He's just chilling.
1: Oh, no, I I would have taken the bird through the fan. Like, yeah, I mean, go ahead. I have thoughts on it. I'll talk later.
0: Oh, no, it's okay. And then he's asked how he felt about himself, you know, because it's been years now at this point from when this was filmed. And he says, quote, like I always felt, I had no feeling. If you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. It's not like TV. It takes over three minutes and you have to have a lot of strength. And he's talking about strangling somebody.
1: Yeah, that's that's why I would prefer the bird through the fan because it was a little less like I fucking killed these women and I didn't care. Yeah.
0: And one of the victims, Brothers John... Did see this, and he says it was a very painful experience watching him tell how he killed my sister. End quote. And it's like, well, of course. Like, I know at the end of the day, it's it was his
1: choice to watch it, but it's like, oh, sometimes like not knowing is worse. This is true. But then, like, I would have eventually like reconciled in my head. Okay, it was three minutes. Like that could feel like an eternity. But just saying, like, it wasn't like she spent hours and hours of being like physically tortured. Yeah.
0: So, okay, now, with his sentence, like I said earlier, he was given the death penalty, right? But on June 28th in 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court, they upheld his conviction, but they reversed the death sentence because more than 250 potential jurors were unconstitutionally excluded from his jury because of their conscientious or religious scrapples against capital punishment the case was remanded back to the Illinois Supreme Court for resentencing. So then on June 29th, 1972, in Foreman versus Georgia, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional. So the Illinois Supreme Court's only option was to order spec his resentenced to prison by the original Cook County Court. So going back to Paroya. On November 21st, 1972, Judge Richard Fitzgerald resentenced Speck from 400 to 1,200 years in prison, which is eight consecutive sentences of 50 to 150 years. He was denied parole several times. He was denied parole in seven minutes at his very first hearing on September 15th, 1976, and then he had six more. He had hearings in 1977, 78, 81, 84, 87, and 90. And every time they were like, nah, bitch, you stay in. Now, jump to the following year, December 5th, 1991, the day before his birthday. Richard died of a heart attack at 6.05 a.m., at the, this was before his 50th birthday too, so it's like, that's weird, at Silver Cross Hospital, and he had been taken there after complaining of chest pains and nausea at Stateville. After his death, Dr. Jan E. Listma, a neuropathologist at the Chicago Institute of Neurosurgery, performed an autopsy on his brain, and they had some weird abnormalities that they found. Two areas of the brain, the hippocampus and the amygdala, were said they were encroached upon each other and that the boundaries were blurred. The doctor made tissue section slides and presented them to others who agreed that his findings were unusual, and there was no further analysis on this. However, the samples, they were either lost or stolen because they were like in the middle of sending them to a Boston neur- neurologist for more testing. So Dr. Liestma's findings had to be inconclusive because they couldn't fucking do anything else because they were gone right then another doctor dr john r hughes he is or was a neurologist and the longtime director of the epilepsy clinic at the university of illinois college of medicine he looked at the photos of the tissue in the 90s along with brainwave tests performed on richard in the 60s And he said, quote, I had never heard of that type of abnormality in the history of neurology. So any abnormality that exceptional has got to have an exceptional consequence, end quote. And he says that his homicidal nature was because of a combination to the brain abnormalities, the violence that he dealt with, with, you know, the stepfather and then his own drinking and drug use and all of that stuff. So it was like a huge combination of a lot of things. Now, after he died, his body wasn't claimed. Dwayne Crager was the coroner in Will County. He said he talked to Richard's sister, and she said, quote, they were afraid people would desecrate the grave if they had him buried out there. His sister also stated that, told her kids, you can never tell people Richard Speck was your uncle. So... He was cremated, and the only person who knows where those ashes ended up was Dwayne, his chief deputy pastor, and then John Whiteside, who was part of the – he was like a columnist of one of the local newspapers and pretty much like have never talked about it. So it's a mystery on where that was because they all basically were like (laughs) – we ain't gonna fucking tail <laughs> right and basically the only thing duane really would say about it is like quote we said a couple of prayers and spread them to the wind it was a very small funeral end quote and so that ends the life of richard spick so yeah interesting interesting
1: it was. The documentary that I watched, I it was really interesting because, you know, he had all this hatred for women, right? Mm-hmm. Tara said earlier, like his therapist said Richard loved women until they showed the first slide of like inconsistency to him. And right. then he like wanted to destroy them. He hated them. Mm-hmm. I think that had a lot to do with his mother. But it was interesting that in the end, for his own survival. He and I don't want people to be like, oh, they're like talking differently about trans. It's not what I'm talking about. No, no, no. I want people right now to know that that's not what we're talking about. But like the fact that this man hated women so much that he committed such violent acts about on them that he turned around and his way of surviving was to assume the role of like a submissive sexual partner Mm -hmm. and made himself feminine to survive. When if he had just it's one of those things where if he had probably gotten help when he was young, this may have not transpired. It's really just an interesting turn, like because when I was watching the documentary and they they show clips of him being interviewed, there was no like they didn't show the the sexual part. They just showed like Mm -mm. him doing drugs and then but like when he's he's actually just sitting there talking and there's like a there's another person in there with him and that guy asked him like oh are you wearing the the blue panties Mm
0: -hmm. and And he's like yeah Yeah. and so he
1: like takes off his pants and then he takes off his shirt and like i was telling tara when i first saw it i looked at it and i was like oh richard has old man boobs Mm -hmm. and then i was looking at it looking at him closer like Mm -hmm. looking at the video closer and i was like no richard has boobs those mm-hmm. are those are memories. Those are right. those are boobs, and so it was just like an interesting that he went that far, right? Exactly. And they talked about in the documentary like how he was basically considered a queen in the prison system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a queen bee. Yeah, and this is how he survived. Mm-hmm. It's just literally, I was like, what? I think it sh- it does definitely show that he
0: was a calculated person for sure.
1: Oh yeah, I think what he knew is that being a man who raped and killed women in prison, he would be killed. Mm-hmm. However, being a submissive, they could punish him in other ways. It's just, it's crazy. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely a lot to, to soak in to soak in for sure <laughs> it is but with that we are gonna go ahead and wrap this episode up for today thank you guys for listening we appreciate and love each and every one of you and we will be back on thursday bye bye
1: guys